Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Open this hour by reading uh, the beginning and the end of the Declaration of Independence. I commend it to you in its entirety. Uh, I recommend you stand and you read it aloud in its entirety. You will be reminded not only of um, what our founders faced, um, but against whom uh, they faced off. So, When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political uh, bonds which have connected them with one another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes, becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. And then begins the long litany that begins with the word, but, and, uh, and outlined there are many, many pages, in fact, of reasons and causes for what became the American Revolution. Following that is this paragraph. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. And the concluding paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be, free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that, as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, 
and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. As you uh, consider the nation in which we live, as you consider the banner which flies over us, as you consider the state of our nation today, let us remember the cause that called us forth to be a people, a cause of liberty, a cause of freedom, and one under the sovereignty and providence of a creator and just God. When we come back, Peter Kapsner will be with me. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Dr. Peter Kapsner. Welcome back, sir. Yeah, hey, thanks, Actually, Carmen. That you, was, uh... you could kind of be welcoming me back. You've been here. Yeah, well... yeah so thank you for hosting last week. Yeah, it sounds like you had a, a, a positive week with your family, with everything that's going down. So it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, what a gift to work with a colleague like you. Genuinely appreciate it. Well, it, 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 that is very mutual, Carmen. I sat there and listened to you read the Declaration of Independence and, and just, you know, what that does and what that evokes uh, and from an emotional standpoint, but also I think for me from a reminding standpoint that the level of discourse among government leaders can really, it, it can raise up again. I mean, I, I think like many people, I'm quite frustrated with the level of discourse that seems to have devolved into insults across political aisles and and when you read something like the sections of the Declaration of the Independence that you did, you, you there were some really uh, amazing thinkers back in the day. And I listened to an address uh, from John F. Kennedy to the press in 1961 yesterday. And again, I was just sort of, it, it, it took hold of me and I thought, gosh, we really could use some thoughtful, level-headed, fair-minded thinking that, that also has some charisma around it that could lead us out of this mess at this point. You know, uh, it, it... That observation is made by so many people in so many contexts and conversations. Um, and uh, I had that very same conversation actually with a couple of, uh, well, I mean, they're in their 20s, so I don't even know what generation they're in now. Um, yeah. Right. But, you know, they're young and they made that observation. And then one of them said to the other, what if those were the people who were aborted? Oh, like, see, wow. we now generationally live with the reality that we have now aborted 60 million Americans yeah. who yeah. would be a part of today's discourse if if they were had been allowed to live. And so who knows? Who knows yeah. who we aborted along the way who might today be the kind of shepherd that we need as a people? It's just yeah. it's so frustrating. Well, I mean, we do sobering. live with the consequences wow. of our. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's not what you and I are talking about today. Right. But I am sure. writing down. I am writing down. um uh, reflect on the Declaration of Independence and the language therein versus the coarseness of our current discourse. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. Absolutely great so, way to say it. So I'm making a note of that. Okay, um, now pivoting to um, this subject that you and I uh, teed up to talk about today. 
Um, remind us, you're kind of a funny guy. So I thought I would ask you uh, about okay. Carl Reiner, um, funny guy, um, now deceased. So talk with us about who and what makes us laugh. And then, you know, gosh, the utter tragedy of dying without a living relationship with God. Oh, I mean, there's a generation of comedians, right, that Carl Reiner fell into. I mean, his his career was enormous. It's too much to detail even in, in the time that we have together. But he's part of sort of the the people in show business that really broke ground for us in terms of the laughter of show business. When you look at Mel Brooks, when you look at Dick Van Dyke, when you look at Betty White, I mean, when I saw the the second Mary Poppins movie and Dick Van Dyke showed up again at the end and he managed to crawl onto the desk at the age of 91 years old or however old he was and, and do this dance again, it just reminded me of the comedic talent that really broke ground for, for so much laughter in entertainment. And they... It was uh, it was quite remarkable to see that generation, and, and they obviously shared a bond of friendship where they really enjoyed hanging out together. They laughed together. They had long marriages, many of them together. And yet, to your point, and the passing of Carl Reiner here just recently, there's a sense among them, even in the midst of the laughter, and it's so common in comedians, isn't it, that there, there's some tragedy underneath the comedy. And in, and in this case, the, the tragedy was that there just was not a belief in God. And so for all of the long-lived career and for for all of the laughter that they created for people and the entertainment value that I think, you know, for many people, it's it's not a bad thing to have just an escape every once in a while and just laugh together. And they did that. But it is really different, Carmen, when you and I, Paul and Paul Perot, laugh together, for example, off the air, or many of our listeners know those eternal kinds of friendships that they have where they laugh together. There's a joy that underpins that because we have an eternal home to which we're headed. And the, the best that this sort of group of comedians could come up with was a concept. I don't know if you had heard of it before, but I had not. And, it, and it's not a very common concept. It's called Yenemvelt. And, it, and it's this idea from the Yiddish that when you die, you will go to a place where all of the things that were good that never happened to you will begin to happen to you. And, and that's really all they had to put their trust in. That is so different than the Christian story of saying that all of the brokenness and fractures and fragmentation of our world will begin to be put right by a God who is for us and loves us and will create just sort of the, the, the fullness of shalom that we desire in our hearts, that our laughter as believers together, we get a little taste of that future shalom. And that's very different than what happened uh, with, with the passing of Carl Reiner, you sent me the story and said it was tragic. And, and at first I didn't understand where you were coming from with the tragedy of it. Other than as I began to read it, I thought, oh, even the deepest laughter in life. And uh, these are some of the funniest people that, that have lived in the last 50, 60 years. And, and yet there was a hollowness at the end of it all. So um, we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Peter Kapsner and I are reflecting upon... Um, you know, uh, by all American standards, a life well lived, um, but a life that uh, that ended on Monday um, when Carl Reiner uh, passed from this life um, at his home in Beverly Hills. And uh, he he thinks he got the last laugh. And that's just part of the tragedy of this whole thing. And so yeah. um, he imagines that there is this far off place. This is something that his mother taught him where all good things happen to you um, that weren't happening to you in the here and now. Um, and he shared that vision and then that idea with many of his contemporaries. Um, and then now as they die, 
they face the reality of heaven and hell. And so we're going to just continue this conversation in just a moment. I know it's a little dark. It's a little deep. um, (laughs) But there is there is a necessity of us dealing with the realities of life and death, um, particularly with an aging population that simply does not know the truth. So continuing my conversation with Peter Kapsner in just a moment. On June the 27th, just a couple of days before he died, Carl Reiner tweeted this, Nothing pleases me more than knowing that I have lived the best life possible by having met and marrying the gifted Estelle, Stella LeBost, who partnered with me in bringing Rob, Annie, and Lucas Reiner into this needy and evolving world. We're talking about the life um, and the death and the beliefs of Carl Reiner, and I'm doing so with Peter Kapsner. Um, Peter, what we believe has consequences. I mean, ideas have consequences. We talk about that a lot. Um, bad ideas yeah. have have deadly consequences. Um, but the ideas in this life also have eternal consequences. They absolutely do, uh, Carmen. And it's you know interesting. I was actually watching, of all things, uh, an episode of an old Disney show uh, with my kids the other night, and and the, the episode centered around the idea that one of the characters who was right probably around 13 years old she was going through the uh uh divorce with her parents and her dad had showed up after many years away and the it was just raw it was incredibly well written the episode was because it took us into the psychology of this of this young girl and the and the depth of emotional pain she felt as a result of the fragmentation of the family and the reason why I bring that up is is we actually we paused the the show and our whole family was together at the time. We began to talk about it. And I said, you know, you guys, I don't think or I don't know if you know the sustained attack that was done, uh, a very um, intentional attack, both on the existence of God and on the um, idea that the family is antiquated and needs to be broken apart in the name of individualized freedom. I said, the, these ideas began to run pretty roughshod. The sustained attack on the idea of God, maybe in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s with some religious philosophers, and then in the 1970s, the attack on the family. And these were beliefs, Carmen, that people had about a better way to do life. And those beliefs really began to take root and take hold in our society. And I said to them, I said, you're, you're living now in the rippling impact of about three or four, or sometimes five generations removed from ideas that change the very trajectory of how our country understands itself, how our families understand themselves, how our churches understand themselves. And, and what has been the outcome? I mean, if, if we discern things by their fruit, if in God's kingdom, uh, that's always the invitation is you, you wonder what is a wise way of life? Well, watch the rippling impact of the decisions and the ideas that you have. And sometimes that rippling impact will take some time and sometimes some generations. But you'll be able to discern the wisdom of something and its consistency with God's kingdom by the fruit. And and we didn't get much further in the conversation than that as we began to talk about it. But when I, I when I see so many young people who are who are lost and broken and uh, don't really know a pathway forward and even some of the level of discourse we are having in our country these days, Beliefs have impact. What you believe really does matter. It's not just sort of an intellectual exercise. It drives your values. It drives your decisions and your emotions and uh, where you find yourself in life. And this is a great example of of just that as well. So his son, uh, Rob Reiner, would be, I mean, of the three kids, the one that listeners probably most familiar with. Yeah. Um, Rob Reiner, you know, said in uh, on his Twitter feed 
on Christmas Day this past year, um, you know, he he comes right out and says, look, I'm not a Christian, but um, I do seek to live by the teachings of Jesus. I mean, you know, wouldn't the world just be a better place if everyone did unto others as we would have them do unto us, you know, treat others as we want to be treated? Um, the uh, the adoption of of sort of the good morality of um, of Jesus without actually the confession of Jesus as mm. Christ um, and the. And and sort of the goodness of the generation from I mean I'm just going to use that that term you know sort of yeah. the seemingly moral goodness of a generation that Carl Reiner represented, um, but their failure to um, not only apprehend the things of the faith but then to pass those on generation to generation like that seems significant to me. Yeah, it is. You cannot have Jesus's teachings without Jesus himself. You, it doesn't work that way. You can't just neatly apply cultural appropriation. Like I just want to stand yeah. up and say, you can't have Jesus without. You can't no. have you. That's that is cultural misappropriation. You can't have it, that. It, it absolutely is. Jesus says uh, pretty convincingly that I am the vine and you are the branches. Remain in me and you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the idea that from some secular humanistic place that I can sort of pick and choose among what you perceive to be the great philosophers of the day and lump Gandhi and Jesus and Buddha and a number of different people in as sort of just enlightened teachers. And we're going to seek to apply that. It doesn't work that way. There's something called sin in the world <laughs> that has a pretty significant power that is seeking to kill and destroy. And it's only through a, a leaned in surrendered relationship with Jesus. Do you begin to have the power to bring about the very morality that you seek to espouse? And and it's it's his empowerment that does that, and it's a surrendered life to lead that leads to that kind of power. You simply can't do it by yourself. There's the 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 um, spiritual forces against that. Uh, all of the scriptures witness to that idea that you just apart from Jesus you can do nothing. Hmm. All right. I know this is kind of sober, um, and so we you and I have like one minute left. Let's just invite people into a living relationship with Jesus Christ, not only unto salvation. Yeah. I mean, not only unto. I mean. Unto salvation, not only unto uh, a life eternal in heaven, but a but a life worth living right now. Yeah, Carmen, that invitation makes me cry. It gives me chills when you say that because there is actually hope in this world, right? And and it's not easy. And Jesus doesn't make all of our problems go away. But uh, but I'm mindful of what Dallas Willard said at one point, that those who begin to lean into Jesus begin to have the power to, to overcome the organized and disorganized evil in the world around them, in their own hearts, in those places. And so if somebody is listening this morning and maybe thinks they've given Jesus a shot and has rejected or has never really even considered the possibility of that, to just simply step back and say, you know what, Jesus, I'd like to give you a shot and I'm going to go ahead and put my life in your hands and, uh, and, and let's take this journey together. That is such a powerful threshold moment that stuff begins to get released in our lives that, yes, is eternal for the future, but it also happens in the present. Not all at once. It doesn't fix everything. But boy, Carmen, there's a sustained peace and, and love and joy that begins to grow and take hold in the midst of all of the other stuff. And if you're listening right now and you are a believer, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, um, then the opportunity that exists for you and I today is that we would stand at that threshold with someone else and yes. we would say, come, come across, take, take the step of faith across that threshold. Um, it's not as if we live with every question answered. It's that we live in the midst of a of a story um, walking side by side, day in, day out, moment by moment with the creator of the universe who died to redeem us. And so um, every question won't be answered. Um, every step won't be, you know, illuminated in advance. 
but you get to walk by faith um, and you get to walk with with this security of knowing that you are um, precious unto the eternal God and Savior of all. So join us. Step across the threshold today. Um, Join Peter and I, um, because let me just tell you, um, God, God gets the last laugh. All right, Peter, let's um, let's leave it right there. Thanks so much, as always. Uh, we'll talk next week. Sounds good. Amen, have a, sister. Have, have a great 4th of July. July. Yeah, you too, yeah, man. You too. All right, we'll be right back. Okay, we live in an age of uh, skepticism. We also live in an age where um, people are asking questions that... Um, maybe, you know, haven't been publicly asked for at least decades here in the United States of America. Um, And let's just take polyamorous relationships as an example here. Um, So in in 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States um, functionally redefined marriage in this country. Uh, It used to be uh, exclusively between one man and one woman, and it used to be for life. And we have been Um, slowly but surely redefining that over time. And so the one man, one woman language came out. And now we have the city of Somerville in Massachusetts that has broadened the definition uh, yet again to include relationships between three or more adults. Um, And why do I share that? Well, because you and I live in a time when communicating the truth of the gospel and and then uh, what God says about what's best for us and how he designed things is increasingly difficult. And so how do we have those conversations in, uh, in a skeptical age? Well, we do so by telling a better story. So Josh uh, Chatreau is going to be here in just a moment. He is the author of Telling a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age. This is Max Licato. Family pain is often the deepest pain because it was inflicted so early and because it involves people who should have been trustworthy. You were too young to process the mistreatment. You didn't know how to defend yourself. Besides, the perpetrators of your pain were so large. Your dad, mom, uncle, big brother, they towered over you, usually in size, always in rank. And when they judged you falsely, you believed them. All this time, you've been operating on faulty data. You're stupid, slow, dumb like your daddy. Decades later, these voices of defeat still echo in your subconscious, but they don't have to. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. These are the words from Romans 12, 2 and 1 Corinthians 13, 11. Let him replace childish thinking with mature truth. You are not who they said you were. You are God's child. Your plans still prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fight. Joining me now, uh, Josh Chatreau. He is the author of Telling a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age. Josh, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Well, it's it's great to have you um, here with us. Um, full disclosure here, I, I actually wrote a book on conversational apologetics. And so um, I love this subject matter, and I am so appreciative uh, uh, so appreciative of not only the content, but what you're inviting us to do. And so um, I just want you to lay out the invitation. Why do we need this? Um, and then why do we need it now? 
Yeah, I mean, I think maybe I can start with the second question, why we need it now. I think one of the things that I I see as I've interacted in the church is that um, the culture has shifted so rapidly, where it was once that um, even if someone wasn't a believer in the gospel, they would um, see it as a social good, as something good for society. It was something that created moral people. And so, you know, it it was— it had social kind of capital attached to it. And it went very quickly from that to kind of a neutral thing to now in many places in the West, it's actually seen as something that's not good for society. And so that that shift means that conversations are much harder. Uh, gospel conversations are much more difficult. And and yet our ministry models in many cases were built in, you know, 30 years ago, and we're still trying to use uh, some some models to have these conversations that actually assume a very different context. So the book was written just practically, how do we actually get into these conversations uh, given that climate? And of course, we need to get in those conversations because this is the true story, and it's the story that— uh, gives us meaning and value and morality and, and beauty and love and all the things that uh, late moderns are looking for is found in this, in the gospel story. All right. So you use a term there, late moderns. Um, I'd love, <laughs> I'd love for you to define that because I do think that, like, let's say that my mom's listening right now, she's 82. You're going to have yeah. to help her understand um, her grandchildren, who are, you know, 16 and 17, but you're also going to have to help her understand um, the generation that maybe is between me and my nieces and nephews, right? So there's, I, because I do think that the way people see the world and the way they think about the world and process information and even the events of the day, they don't yeah. even recognize that their worldview is so radically different than the worldview of the next and then emerging generations. Yeah. 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 I, I, you're right to call me to do that because I used that word and didn't explain it. And yet I don't think we have enough time for me to fully unpack it. But let me give you a few <laughs> things. I mean, I, I think one of the things obviously is in, in, you know, about 12 years ago, we got these things called iPhones. <laughs> and I think that these these iPhones and these kind of phones, I mean, it, it, technology has changed the way people think and process. And one of the things is we kind of have it represents this kind of me culture that we build around ourselves. It also represents uh, you have access to um, ideas from all over the world. And so that is attached to something called pluralism, where there is no kind of one dominant religion anymore. And so you feel if you're in an urban area or you're under 40, you feel the fragility of your beliefs. It doesn't mean you don't believe. It doesn't mean you're, you can't be a faithful Christian but you feel, feel the plausibility of other um, religious stories, of other secular stories, because you can't just simply dismiss those people as crazies, although that sometimes happens. But we shouldn't simply dismiss those people as crazy because we get to know them and we realize, like, th this is a smart person. And and so you can't um, kind of just go into your own little shell Oh, that sometimes happens, but it's harder if you're in an urban area. It's harder if you're younger and um, to do that. And so I think uh, for younger people, for people in urban areas, they feel more of the kind of um, what a philosopher Charles Taylor calls the cross pressures, the pressure of unbelief in a way that probably your grandmother 
if, if she's a believer, hasn't felt. All right, which leads to a conversation uh, immediately about the hesitancy to share the gospel because evangelism suddenly seems um, like I'm telling someone else that what they believe is wrong, which, of course, um, if the truth is true and it's true truth, yeah. then other things cannot stand as true as well. So um, so I think that uh, I love what you do at the end of the book because you talk about yeah. you're, you're actually answering these objections to an oppressive story, an unloving story, and an untrue story. So I definitely want um, to get there. Let's take a very, very brief break. I'm talking with Josh um, it, his last name is pronounced like Chateau with an R in the middle, but it's spelled Chatraw because I want you to be able to find him. So, um, uh, so Josh Chatraw, but you're looking for C-H-A-T-R-A-W. He is the author of Telling a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age. We'll be right back. Talking with author Josh Chetreau about his book, Telling a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age. I would describe this as conversational apologetics training at its best. If you're not familiar with the inside-out method, that would be the apologetics method being employed here. Uh, Josh, unpack the inside-out method um, briefly, and then let's talk about answering the objections to the story. Yeah. yeah. Well, inside-out, uh, it's... It starts with um, what I practically I tell people just a great way to get in a conversation is say, hey, what's your story? And if you listen closely to someone's story as they describe it, you'll hear things that um, where they're tapping, you know, where they're trying to get meaning or um, where they're finding love, where they're something that they're worshiping. Listen, listen carefully and you'll hear certain things that are, I think, just basic human personhood. And I think some of those things we can affirm, um, uh, you know, they love their family, they, they get meaning in those these types of things. But I think along the way, you're going to find you're also as you're stepping into their story, this is the inside part, you're stepping into their story and you're saying, what are some things as they as they tell their story that I can affirm? But what are some things I need to challenge or get them to think more about that if they hold that consistently or if it's one thing to, to love something but if you're loving something uh, and making it ultimate, is that going to really give you what you're looking for? And so having these conversations where you step into their story in order to then take them back out into the gospel story and, 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 and ask them to try it on, see how it fits, see how it better explains life. And so that's inside out in a you know, really quick summary. The book's going to unpack that in a lot more detail, but, but that's, that's the gist of it. And so the better story that we're always telling um, is is the story of the gospel. And every mm-hmm. conversation is a gospel con- has the potential to be a gospel conversation. But as a believer, I have to get over the fear of the threshold, right? Mm-hmm. I can I can listen to a conversation. I can overhear you know a group of people talking about something, yeah. and I can know as a Christian that there's a wide open door to to walk the gospel out, um, and I can still stand there in my fear. And the reason that I stand there in my fear is really because of the of the objections that you point out in in the in the last part of the book. And yeah. and maybe I don't know how to answer those objections. So talk with us 
Um, and again, I know it's 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 a crazy <laughs> brief overview. But, you know, how do yep. we answer the objections? And you could just pick one. People who say that, yep. you know, the gospel story is oppressive or they say it's unloving or they say it's untrue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think what, what we have to do here is we have to listen closely and we have to a lot of times people are picking up on things where Christians have failed them. And, and, and I think, you know, th- there's plenty of examples of that. And I think we have to acknowledge that. And yet at also within the Christian storyline, I think there's resources that have continually corrected both society and Christians. And let me give you uh, just just one example of that. I think within the Christian storyline, we have um, this, this belief that humans are made um, in the image of God and therefore have dignity. And, and so what's happened in our world today is because Christianity has been injected into the Western world, into kind of the bloodstream. What you have are moral ideals such as we should love everyone regardless of, uh, you know, of race or tribe or country. People you've never met across, you know, you know and, and on another continent right now, you should love and that all people should have human rights. Well, you know, scholars, and I'm not even talking about Christian scholars here, I'm talking about secular scholars, have recognized that those are Christian, that those make sense along the Christian storyline, and it's and it's the, the, it's the inheritance, the Western culture is in some sense living off the inheritance of the Christian story. So now Christians haven't lived up to those ideals in many cases, but still it's the Christian storyline that has given us uh, has been a has been the root of this kind of fruit, and so when someone's saying, "Well, Christians haven't lived always lived up to that," I want to be quick to say, "Yes, we we haven't." And yet, if you know, where are you going to get these ideas from if it's not the gospel? And so I want I, I'd like to kind of say, "Where are you going to get these ideas?" Let me tell you our story and how this God who created us in His image gives every human being every human being this dignity. But does your story give you that? And so, so there's a there's a way here where you can listen and affirm, and then yet at the same time you're challenging kind of the the, the very basis by which they're um, kind of challenging Christianity. But you, you don't have to do it in a way that's us versus them. You can do it in a way that invites them in and affirms, like, hey, this ideal you have, I have that too. And so, you know, tongue in cheek, sometimes I say, I, I think you might be more Christian than you realize. In other words, you have these Christian ideals, but you just need this gospel story. Which leads to a great question. Um, can a person be, you know, it's kind of a moralistic uh, follower of Jesus without actually being a disciple? Um, because I do think there are people who are... Um, they function as if God is not sovereign or God is not present and God is not active, but they also operate on a set of shared cultural ideas that are absolutely yeah. Christian in their basis. Yeah. Well, no, I, that, that doesn't make, you know, adopting Christian morality in that sense doesn't make you Christian, of course. <laughs> I, but but the goal here is is if people are saying Christianity's uh, not beautiful and not good is is bad. Mm. I want to help them see actually it's good, and then and and then they have to you know, of course bow the knee and trust in Christ. 
But going back to kind of what is a late modern, I mean, I think one of the challenges that we're facing is people uh, are objecting, not simply saying this isn't true, but they're saying it's not good and it's not beautiful. And so I want to tell I want to tell them I want to help them see I want to open up their imagination so they begin to see that this is a good story, a beautiful story. And this is this is a Lord that they should trust. This is a God they should trust and can trust. So um, certainly don't want people to be confused. I'm not saying simply if you if you adopt the teachings of Christ, um, it, you know, just the moral kind of ideals of Christ. Therefore, you'll be a Christian. Plus, um, you know, he's Jesus told, I'm the way, the truth and the life. I mean, that's that's rooted in his moral teachings that you would submit to him. Absolutely. Um, Josh uh, is the director of. The New City Fellows and its resident uh, is resident theologian at Holy Trinity Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, he's got all kinds of really wonderful uh, books uh, under his belt: The History of Apologetics, Apologetics at the Cross. This one that we're talking about today is telling a better story: How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age. I would describe this, uh, Josh, as putting all of that um, of those sort of heavy lift materials at a level where every single person who's listening right now can not only apprehend what you're saying, but turn it into tangible action uh, in the conversations that they're going to have today with others. Um, People who are listening closely absolutely heard uh, Josh make reference there to to those, you know, transcendental virtues of uh, goodness, beauty, and, and, and truth. Um, And that is how we answer the questions of the reality of who God is and Uh, And so thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you for the book, Telling a Better Story. You guys can find Josh. Let me spell his last name for you. C-H-A-T-R-A-W. You know, it sounds like uh, Chateau, but it's spelled like chat raw. And so I do want you to be able to find him, which is the only reason that I would butcher his name like that. So thank you so much, Josh, for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. All right. So uh, appreciating my interaction with you um, on our text line this morning. Thank you to Deborah. Thank you to Brenda. Thank you to Jeff. Love the interaction. Just remember, you can always text me during the show at 877-933-2484. You can also email me at Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. As we uh, turn our attention in the next, you know, day, days, weekend to national events, uh, national celebrations, personal and family celebrations of the independence that we enjoy together. Let me direct you again to the language of our founding documents, to the language um, of the things that we say about ourselves and the Pledge of Allegiance and in the Constitution. And, um, you know, spend some time, spend some time actually reading some things out loud, considering the words of the songs that we sing when we celebrate uh, our nation's heritage and, and formation. And then, yeah, con- confess, like recognize we have not always lived up to. In fact, in many ways, we have failed to live up to the aspirations uh, articulated therein. But that doesn't mean we can't do better. And it doesn't mean um, that the ideas uh, behind those documents or those songs um, are any less valid today than they were even 200 years ago. All right. Have a great weekend and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.